You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Here's Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Hey, you guys. Hey. Uh, you know, some, sometimes it's been, uh, it's been a down vibe on these intros. The energy has been low. But Aaron Lammer, I understand you have good news, my friend. You have an update for the listeners that I'd like you to share. I, uh, I found my cat. My cat has been, uh, my cat has been located. Uh, she's safe and healthy. Um, you know, God bless. Incredible. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm so happy to hear it. I'm, ha- I'm glad that Whistle is back where she belongs. I told a long story that is too long for this introduction, uh, about accidentally trapping a live raccoon while trying to reclaim my cat. That can be heard in the most recent episode of coin talk, which is my other podcast, which is on hiatus except was reinvoked for this story about the live raccoon trapping. You you uh you slacked us about that story and I did. I, there's there's um there, I can think of very few events that I wish there was footage of more than you discovering that giant live raccoon in that trap that you were hoping your your tiny cute house cat was in. Uh this is a sincere question who is on the podcast this week? Aaron, this week on the show, I talked to Philip Montgomery. Philip Montgomery is a uh, incredible photographer. We have never had a photographer on before, which is kind of insane. Is that true? I don't know. That is true. We've had documentarians, wow. but we've never had a photographer. It took us, you guys, it took us 394 episodes to have a photojournalist on. Oh. <laughs> Madness. I, I'm embarrassed, but go on. <laughs> It's embarrassing, but we got a great one. Evan, uh, uh, what, what, what kind of work does yes, he we're do? St- we're starting to remedy that. So uh, you have seen his photographs in uh, every magazine, The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, uh, Bloomberg Business Week. He won a National Magazine Award for a series in The New Yorker about the opioid epidemic, uh, which he's shot a lot all over the country, uh, particularly in Ohio for that series. And most recently... In the coronavirus crisis, he got inside of eight hospitals in New York City, basically at the peak of the epidemic, and he shot in those hospitals, did a story for the New York Times Magazine, then he did another story for the New York Times Magazine uh, with a writer named Maggie Jones about a funeral home in the Bronx where he uh, photographed them dealing with the influx of 
uh, deceased people from the from the COVID epidemic. So uh, he's really been in the thick of it recently. He's got a lot of great past work. And because we've never talked to a photographer, I got to take him down all the roads, you know, for the first time that we've never uh, gotten to ask him about how they work. If you are uh, starting out in something, whether it's uh, photography or writing, a great way to keep people abreast of all of your work is with an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make this show possible. Thank you to them over at MailChimp. I'm excited for this one. Here's Evan with Philip Montgomery. Philip, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Obviously, we're we're remote here, as is the custom in these times. So I'm sad that we couldn't sit across from each other. I, I have a certain reverence for photographers because I wanted to be a photographer for much of my like very young life, and then, as you can see, it did not work out for me. And so I am deeply, deeply interested in how you work, and I wanted to sort of start in the now and the pieces you've been shooting in the last couple of weeks and month or two months, and then go back and talk a little bit about how you got to that point. Because these pieces were so stunning in part because, especially for a while, we were just not seeing, say, the inside of a hospital. And the story you did for the Times Magazine was sort of the first time that I really saw, okay, this is what's happening really inside where no one can get to who's not a doctor, not a a nurse, not a patient. So I wanted to just kind of walk through how that came about and how you did it. And first off, when everything got shut down from coronavirus, like what were you working on? What were you shooting at that time? And then how did you shift to this? It's so interesting when I look back on it in the wave of uh, assignments and commissions that were photographed just prior to this. The last shoot that I had worked on was a portrait of Matthew McConaughey, which I can't think of a more contrasting and different style of shoot. It was at a studio in Los Angeles. It was kind of everything you would imagine it to be, you know, for a celebrity shoot. And yeah, that was where that way of working sort of ended for the time being. And then, you know, this sort of began. And did you think to yourself from the beginning, I want to find a way into this? Like, did your photojournalist instincts kick in at that point? Totally. I mean, that's, you know, that is really the core of my work. You know, it's based heavily in photojournalism and documentary. You know, I really got started in newspapers and covering New York. So that way of working, that sort of aggressive, you know, daily hustle of finding where the news is and sort of chasing it much like a beat reporter would is in my blood. So when something like this comes up, everything for me at least kicks in and I immediately saw that this was the story of our time and it would largely be the only story for a long time. And it was time to go. I think a lot of the photographers that I grew up on all sort of had their moment, you know, in a post 9-11 world. I was a little bit young to cover the aftermath of 9-11, whether that be the war or whether that be the war at home. And I sort of had in this weird way, this feeling of envy that they they had their moment with this story that was all encompassing. And (laughs) 
looking at it now, you know, this is the story of my time and it's a little more than I perhaps bargained for. <laughs> um, and you, I mean, you shot in eight hospitals for one piece. So walk me through, first of all, how that comes about. I mean, that it's a very difficult place for anyone to get into privacy laws, much less, I would assume, a photographer. So how does that story, first of all, the concept of going to that many hospitals as opposed to just going to one, and then how you get the access to get in? Right. And, you know, for that, I, I really have to largely credit the incredible staff of the New York Times Magazine. I think from the beginning of working with them on COVID coverage, that was always our goal. At that point, we had really seen the city shut down. And as Jonathan Mahler, who wrote the piece, you know, put it, New York is a city of stories. And at that time, there was only one story, and it was New York City's hospitals. And we, we worked tirelessly to find a hospital that would allow us to come in. It, it really was an effort, a large effort by the photo department, namely Kathy Ryan, who's the director of photography at the Times Magazine, and Shannon Simon, who's a contributing photo editor at the magazine. And eventually, you know, we were able to get into the public hospitals within New York and photograph multiple hospitals in every borough of the city. So then what does a morning look like for you or a day look like for you when you're going to go shoot in one of these hospitals? Like, how do you get organized to actually go in there? What do you have with you? Um, right. So I worked very closely with a colleague and assistant, Trey Cassetta, who I have worked with for, you know, a little while. And him and I have mostly worked in studio shoots. So this was a whole new venture for him. And we had been earlier in our coverage starting to understand what we would need in terms of PPE to be photographing in those environments. So a day for us would sort of start out with arriving at the hospital very early. And we turned his car, the back of his car, into sort of a workstation. We had coated it with plastic and had disinfectants, a number of wipes, and just started to make sure that everything was very procedural when we were going in. The problem would be more when we would exit in terms of, of safety, but we would often park on the street and we would change into head to toe PPE, which would be, you know, a Tyvek suit with booties, with, you know, a pair of gloves, a face shield, an N95, a hair net, and then a surgical mask that would go over the N95. And yeah, then it would be, it would begin. So when you walk in, first of all, what kind of cameras are you carrying? Do you shoot with one camera? Do you have multiple cameras that you're trading out? I, I, I would shoot with one camera in there. It, it became really, it, it's really difficult to shoot in there. In fact, it's impossibly difficult to photograph in there. I say that because we're wearing these giant face shields that really are, they're not face shields for this. They're in fact for welding. And so when I was photographing, I could never lift the camera directly to my face. So that became incredibly difficult. I'd have to shoot kind of looking through the viewfinder with a good, you know, four inches in between the camera and my eye. Or I would switch the camera on live mode, which is essentially the equivalent of like how you'd photograph with an iPhone. But, you know, I'm using digital SLRs, so it's a little bit weirder and having to focus in that environment and then you know, midway through the shoot, 
I figured I'd change it up and wear, you know, really tight goggles for the eyewear, which ended up being awful because they fogged up. And so there would be times often where I would be photographing and the scene was very rich for, in terms of content, there was action, there were, it was a moment. And I would often just take off the face shield and go, you know, I'd, I'd finally just kind of have to give in and bring the camera straight to my face. We, we did what we could. So yeah, it was, it was always a one camera setup. You're also having to navigate spaces where there is a ton of staff. So you want your impact to be low. So I'd go in there with one camera, three lenses, and then a couple lights to do our thing. And my assistant was also there the, the entire time as well. So he would have his own setup as well. And once you sort of have the access and you you get in there and the doctors and nurses are just working, do you fade into the background? Like, are they sort of telling you, don't do this, do this, stay out of this way? Like, how active is your interaction? Are you just kind of floating around as this quiet presence? The time inside there was really limited, Evan. It was what we had worked out with the hospital was they had arranged for us to photograph individuals within those hospitals that they felt were important in telling the story of the crisis. And they were wonderful subjects. So each time we would go in, we would be introduced to an ICU nurse, an ED doctor, a PPE specialist who was training staff on how to put on PPE and take it off. Um, so there was always an individual that we were mainly focused on in each space, but we made sure to be careful in terms of not interrupting workflow and just being low impact, if you will. But all in all, it was, you know, the wards knew that we were there. We're not, we wouldn't really fade into the background. You know, I often use a light that is very, very bright. <laughs> and in that scene, you can't miss us, but I think they had bigger fish to fry. And if we were in the way, you know, you would hear about it. And it was just sort of a like, hey, move, like move. Do you go in with a plan in terms of what you're looking to get? Or how much are you mapping out? Like, here's what I want. I want to get this and that. Or it's in that situation, it's just totally at the mercy of what takes place. I would say it's the latter over the former. I think I would often, you know, this may sound weird, but I think, you know, after a handful of hospitals and spaces, they all began to look the same. So the challenge really started to become, okay, how do we provide a variety of images for the publication? You know, I'd have to often force myself to, not to get too technical, but I shoot fixed lenses, you know, which means you can't zoom in or out. So there would be days where I'd be really comfortably shooting on one lens and, you know, the next day I would kind of have to have a conversation with myself internally of, okay, let's very uncomfortably shoot this lens just so we can have some form of variety when we're editing this to make it a cohesive piece. But we, we went in there with the understanding that we wouldn't photograph patients. And that is something that I feel conflicted about because on the one hand, you really do want to respect the privacy of folks who were in there and respect the moment that they were in. But it was one of those experiences in my career where, and I, I don't take these moments lightly, where what I was looking at and what I was seeing really felt like it was a matter of public information. Some of the scenes were so overwhelming and it pains me that in that moment I couldn't photograph that and bring it to the reader. 
Well, let's talk about that in terms of there was one specific photo that I wanted to walk through, which is the photo where the paramedics are trying to revive a patient who comes in and you, you, so you don't see the patient's face. But I wanted to kind of walk through that photo because that sort of exemplifies that in a way. And first of all, where does your mind go when that moment happens? Like, how do you avoid being overwhelmed by the intensity of that moment? And how do you think about capturing it when it happens? I mean, there's someone who's almost dead and is being actually chest compression revived by paramedics. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, so that was in the ER, the ED at Queens Hospital. And that particular day, the emergency room was overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. There was bodies on top of bodies on top of bodies. And again, this is no statement on the hospital's ability to handle that. It was more representative of that moment in the peak of the curve that I think all hospitals were likely experiencing a similar wave of New Yorkers. And so already the scene was, it, the scene was overwhelming to say the least. And a doctor that we had met earlier flagged us over. We moved across the ER and came across these two paramedics who were, you know, in a, in a very, it's at the time it felt really, really cinematic. They were, they were wheeling in a man, these two New York city fire paramedics were wheeling him in and doing chest compressions like you'd see in the films. And they then moved the man to kind of the middle of the floor. You would imagine that they would, you know, clear some room, you know, move beds aside. But given the capacity issues, there was just nowhere to put him. So they just kind of parked it in the middle of the floor. They just needed to go to work on him because he was flatlining at that point. And they went at it. They went at it for 10 minutes with great intensity and focus. And they were relentless in their, their will and their need to save his life. And I think for me as a photographer at that moment, you know, we, I photographed it and I used we because this was really the work of two people. It was me and my assistant, Trey. And I remember just looking over at Trey through the face shields and through the masks in both of us just being wide eyed. Our eyes were filled with tears a little bit just from the intensity. And also that I think what really came across and I kept just thinking in my mind as I was shooting it was like, this is going to sound cheesy a little bit, but that is heroism. That is a heroic act, you know, and you don't get to see those moments really in day to day, but these are the men and women who every day of this crisis and every day in normal society are putting their lives on the line and saving lives. And it was intense, but in that moment, I think I was just sort of frozen on, wow, this is how hard they will work for one life here. And then when they brought him back, I, I did, I couldn't believe it. And what was, I think the biggest takeaway from that moment in the ER was how <laughs> once it was over, once he was stabilized, how casually they just left, you know, it was almost, you know, the, the paramedics to the doctors inside the ER were sort of like, nice one. All right. See you back out there. And everyone just got back to work. And I, you know, for me as a photographer, it's just, I had never quite seen anything like it to watch the end of life and then them bring this man back into this world 
so heroically and worked on him with all of the intensity they could. I mean, there's photos of that scene and there's one photo with one of the paramedics and he's covered in sweat, dripping in sweat. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And in terms of your work in that moment, are you confident enough that if you're you're shooting during that, that you feel like, okay, I've got this? Or do you have this feeling afterwards, like that was the most amazing, incredible scene, but it's possible that I didn't capture it? I I think in moments like that, I understand the gravity of that. And I mean, I remember telling my assistant that day too, that we should be working this scene, this space, as hard as we possibly can, because we don't know if it's ever going to get this good. I, I say good in terms of us being able to effectively illustrate the larger story. Okay. It's more about if this is going on in all hospitals across the city, and it's our job to illustrate that, this is the maximum of our material that we would need in order to do that, to bring it to the reader. And so, you know, in those scenes, you're working that specific moment, you know, through and through. I'm sure I shot it as much as I possibly could. And, you know, I think on, on those, you just kind of guarantee that you have it because you just don't know if you'll ever be able to see that that again. Yeah, I think that's what I was most interested in was how much of it is sort of instinctual versus you have to be able to, I imagine, kind of like slow down time in that moment and say, okay, what do I need to get right now? Like for a reporter, it's just, you're just there and you're taking notes and later you can go back and sort of fill in your what you saw, but you have to get it it's never going to happen again for you. And how much are you actively thinking about what needs to be framed in order for it to work? Or is that, is that experience that kicks in? It's experience. I think in, in some respects, you can recognize that moment as being special. And that, that moment happened on the first day with the first hospital. Wow. Uh, and <laughs> I'm not tooting my own horn, but like I, I was right. Everything that we saw after that was a tuned down version of what that specific hospital was on that day. And we never saw anything like that again. And yeah, that's it, just kind of the magic of storytelling and it's the magic of photography at times that you're provided these sort of gifts that will help you effectively convey the urgency of the moment to the reader. Right. And you, go with it and you do everything you can to try and distill that very essence of that scene. And, you know, you work it as much as you can. A lot of the, my photographic process at least is gathering as much information and content as I can, and then working it out in the edit later, you know? And when I'm there, I'm just, I'm grabbing as much as I can. I'm just grabbing, I'm grabbing, I'm grabbing. Scene, 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 scene. And then, you know, we'll we'll ingest it and, and think about it later. I, I do, I really do believe that the eye is quicker than the mind. You know, I can, we see a lot quicker before we're sort of thinking of the grand idea, right? You know, there are certain folks that come into it and are really methodical and thoughtful and, you know, executed the picture as they had intended to. But I really do think a lot of the photographic process is just grabbing and then, you know, thinking about it later and crafting it into the the grand idea. 
then how many images are we talking about? Like if you came home from a day at the hospital, how many images would you have shot? I don't think I've ever breached a thousand, but it got close on certain days. And then on other days, it would be far lower. But if you're in a space for hours, you know, and you're trying to get everything you can, you, you, I don't want to say that I'm like just spraying, you know, we're like framing it up and we're, we're looking at the scene. But there's times where, you know, what a lot, one of the things that I'm guilty of is when I'm feeling really insecure in the moment, I'll often just overshoot, you know, because it's got to be there, right? Like, hopefully, <laughs> or else, like, maybe I shouldn't ever work again. Um, but I just try and gather as much information as I can. And then in the edit, that's when you can really start to fine tune it. And I like my work to feel surgical in certain respects. You know, it's not this free flowing thing. You know, the way I photograph and the way I want it to land is very specific. I want you to see something very specific in how I've laid it out for you. You know, so there is a heavy hand of authorship. But when I'm there, it is a lot more free flowing. Um, It just becomes really tight in the edit, you know, much to my potential demise. It takes forever and it's an arduous process, but... And that's to decide what you send, what the photo editor is going to see from you. Right. Yeah. So what I send is a first round. And then, you know, from there, it's in the hands of folks who are far more talented and far more experienced than I am. But yeah, it's a process that is at times, you know, non-conducive to news work per se. You know, (laughs) So it's been a blessing on some of these stories that, you know, I'm doing it for magazines that are long form and, you know, allow you the space to move and operate and think about the work that you're making and you know it still be timely and what's your sort of relationship to the writer on those in those type of situations because i mean the the hospital one it read more like a photo essay situation and then you did this really beautiful the story is beautiful too the funeral home story and what is your relationship like with the writer like in terms of gathering information and for this specific story or for... Yeah, for, for this specific... General? For these specific ones in terms of you being in there and as far as I understand, the writer not being in there. Sure. The, for both of these stories, we want to minimize the risk of our staff getting sick. And so for both of these stories, it, it you know, the hospitals at least, it was... The story started... It was photo-driven. The photo department was leading the charge on this. And... Jake Silverstein, the editor-in-chief, made the call that the magazine needed to write a larger piece on the hospital system, on the public hospital system, and what it's meant to New York, and kind of take the long view of how that system has served a specific New Yorker. And, you know, Jonathan Mahler is the man to do that story, for sure. So I think in working on that piece, I mean, I pride myself on reporting these Largely, you know, and there are times when I will very closely work with reporters and often report it out and try to provide the writers and the reporters with information, whether that be me just taking a video to then, you know, pass down to the reporter of like, hey, I took this like 10 minute video. So you could then write about the scene. You can write about the noise. You can hear the, you know, conversations between doctors and nurses. You could really start to report this from from where you're at. So with Jonathan, it was a bit more of recounting what I had saw. 
because I think when I was in those spaces, I was moving too quick to be able to do a decent job at reporting this out fully. Um, with the funeral home, that was a little bit different where the reporter, Maggie Jones, she at times would be, which was a new experience for me and I think probably a new experience for her, at times we would FaceTime her in. So, you know, either myself or my assistant would have her on an iPhone and she was able to see the same scenes that we were seeing. And that was really new. But, you know, there would be times where, you know, I'd, I'd be privy to a bit of information or a conversation that I would then pass along to the writer and the reporter that, you know, would make it into the piece. And yeah, those always feel good. And just to ask one more thing about the funeral home piece, the hospital seems so intense. People are working. The funeral home situation, you also have these moments of sort of intense emotion and people going through something that's the most important thing in their lives. And I'm interested in when you're in there, do you sort of have a way of building up trust with those people before you shoot? Or do you find that there's a kind of assumption that if someone has let you in, that it must be okay? Like, to what extent do you have to communicate with all the people first and say, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing in this moment of their most intense grief? And how do you do that? Oh, I mean, yeah, I have to be really clear about our intentions especially on a story as sensitive as this, you have to come into that story with all of the empathy that you can muster. You know, you're meeting, at least for families, I mean, you're meeting them on one of the worst days of their lives. And I think it's been a really helpful process for me to first get an understanding of who they had lost and the circumstances of their death. And then, you know, once we had, we've had a, a long conversation about that, if that's even allowed, then I really want to be clear about what we're doing. I really want to be clear so that everyone is on the same page. And then I also want to be clear about the process too. The process being, you know, at times I use a light. And so if you're using a light during a funeral, that could very potentially be very invasive, you know, and I want to run that by them. And I want to be clear about also what we're doing editorially, what the, how they fit into the story. I think photographically, we, we, we often don't think about it, but it's a really helpful conversation to have with the subjects that we photograph where it's, you know, this is the story, this is what we're working on, and this is how you fit into it. And I think once you have that conversation, it becomes really clear to the folks who are in your photo of of the role that they're playing. And not that you want anyone to turn it on, but I think once there's an understanding of like, hey, here's the full picture. This is why I'm here. This is what I want to convey. It's it's a much easier process for for everyone. And did you get into any situations where there were, you know, maybe some people I could imagine who we're okay with that. But then other people in the moment when it actually took place, like if you put up a light would respond negatively to that. Sure. I always, I, yeah, absolutely. And you just, you read the room. It is a privilege and an honor to be invited to witness and document 
the goodbye of a family member, you understand and take on the the responsibility of that invitation. You know, a family saying, I'm going to bravely open myself up to you, stranger, to photograph me in this extremely vulnerable moment because I see the larger importance of this. I mean, that's it's incredibly brave. It's incredibly insightful. And I, I have all of the love and respect in the world for folks who have allowed me to be present in a part of that process. And so when I'm there in the moment, I am extremely sensitive. And so if it feels off at all, I leave or I, I stop what I'm doing. I, I really make sure to have my finger to the pulse of that room. And yeah, sure. There were times where you would just, you would feel it and go, okay, like we're going to take a pause here. Does the emotion of the moment challenge your ability to actually do the work? Like, do you ever find yourself putting down the camera? Not because you, you read the room and sense that someone's uncomfortable with what you're doing, but because you, you feel overwhelmed. I have felt overwhelmed while working on this story. And it's not something that I love to admit, but I, I learned more on this story than I think I did. And I have in any other difficult story that I've covered that when you are as the photographer, when you are feeling that emotion to sort of let it flow, you know, it, it might've been maybe one of the only times in my career that I've cried on shoots. You know, not you know, not broke down crying, but if you're photographing something heavy, if you're photographing a wife who's saying goodbye to her husband, or you know, you're watching daughters say goodbye to their their father, and you feel what you're feeling, and you and you cry as a witness to that, I would I would often just work with that emotion because then I you know that I would hope that that emotion would then pour through into the photography. Like my responsibility when I'm there is to convey that moment to the reader. I serve the reader, okay, in, in those moments. And it is extremely important that I do my job. But if I am feeling on a personal front, then I try to channel that into the work and I try to put everything that I have into making that picture as powerful and as emotional as I'm, I'm feeling. And that's how I can, you know, sort of pay back the debt of being there. So where, where did all this come from? Where did your kind of interest in photography start? What's your first memory of sort of being interested in taking pictures? I became really interested in it. It's weird. It's not weird. It's, it's rather clear, strangely clear had come across a documentary on a war photographer, this very famous war photographer, maybe the most famous war photographer ever, called James Knockway. The film's called War Photographer. I love that. I love and that he's, documentary. And he's really, it's almost this funny, I laugh because it's like this funny trope amongst photographers that, you know, do what we do. Um, that uh, It's like, oh, yeah, you saw a war photographer. Cool. Great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, another war photographer photographer. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, cool. You saw a war photographer. Real original. <laughs> nice. Um, but it's true. All right. It's true. But I think what was, what was unique about my experience in, in coming across Nakwe's work was how young I was. 
I, I think, man, I must have been like a sophomore in high school. And it blew my mind. I had never seen anything like that. I had already been loosely interested in photography. It was right when digital cameras dropped. I, I really just became fascinated by these things that, you know, you didn't have to go through film. The was unlimited pictures, essentially. But I didn't know anything about the craft. But my first exposure to photography was through Knockway. And after that, there was really no looking back. It's I saw the work that he was doing and I wanted to do that. And obviously that's changed some. There's been variations on the theme, but you know, I, that became the goal. And that was in high school. And so I joined high school yearbook and really this all started in, in high school yearbook. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it allowed me to really cover a high school, like a newspaper would cover, you know, a town. Um, uh-huh. and I will say that I, I, it's still my proudest work is my <laughs> high school yearbook. It's <laughs> prolific. If you, if, if, you know, any of your listeners can ever get their hands on it, it's, uh, it's something I think I, I increased, <laughs> the size of the yearbook by like two or three inches single-handedly um super dorky i know but that thing was thin and now it's this beautiful epic that i I really (laughs) largely hope that everyone grabs a copy of um but it all it all started there and i think a lot of the um same excitement that i get out of the work that i do now within the documentary practice at least it's still the same sort of excitement that i felt when i was you know, creating work in in high school, you know, you got to be in a space that specific people were allowed to be in and no one else could be there because you were a photographer. And that was as simple as being on, you know, a football field when, you know, really only the two teams and the coaches could be there. You know, you got to be there because you had a camera. And I still, you know, largely feel that. That sort of inherent curiosity around the craft. I'm almost more married to the social aspect of what I do beyond the the photographic aspect of what I do. I'm more interested, I think, in the interactions that I have with people than I am in photography. That to me is what really drives the work. And it's been really foundational. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of ways that interest can then manifest when you actually get to the point of training and becoming a professional and you can go very strong in the commercial direction. And, but then there's a lot of people that straddle, you know, between commercial and, and photojournalism or studio or whatnot. So what, when you got your training, were you driven entirely by, I want to be a photojournalist or how did you sort of navigate into photojournalism originally? Uh, well, I'm self-taught. I, I, I barely got out of high school, honestly. Mm. And that's not because I was, getting in trouble. I was actually really singularly just about photography. I, I just really I, high school just wasn't agreeing with me, but I, you know, thankfully I just had this, I had this goal and I had this anchor in the work and I knew that I wanted to do it. So, and I didn't go to college. I just, you know, I tried to study the early practitioners at home and see the sort of way that they would work on a story and try to piece that together on a local level. And I would just really study the work of photographers from Magnum. And there was another photo agency at the time called Seven. It's still around, um, but at the time they had sort of exploded on the scene and had a heavy hitting roster of photographers. And 
would just often look at the photo essays that they were putting out and try to understand what made a photo essay. You know, it would be a story about a Iraq vet and they would sort of tell this narrative arc in, in their photos of an Iraq vet returning home to their town. And so I would try and look for, you know, these narratives in my town and also really knock on the doors of the newspapers that were covering the region of California that I'm from, which is what, what town is it? It was uh, San Bernardino Redlands, um, Southern California. It's a little pocket that's tucked in between um, LA and Palm Springs, you know, and I would go and cover anything from fires to, you know, the occasional like car accident or, you know, area 81 year olds, best apple pie competition or some, you know, some ridiculous thing like that. I didn't know that you had not sort of formally gone to school. No, I was grinding for some time. And then I went to Kashmir in Northern India to try to make that work. You know, again, it was very naive in, in certain respects. I was young. I was 18. I'd just gotten out of high school, but I was like, okay, a photojournalist goes to a place and goes to a place where there is, you know, bang, bang, which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But I was young. <laughs> and <laughs> you'd seen more photographer. So sure. Yeah, it was again, it was ridiculous. And, uh, you know, much to my parents dismay. But, you know, I, I went there to try and make a story happen. And also, you know, take a photography workshop with you know, a number of other photographers and try and dip my toe in that. And then I had had a, you know, a long trip to East Africa. You know, I'm still now at this time, like 19. And so I'd really, you know, was trying to model a career off of the photographers that I largely admired and found the craft through. But then there became a moment of like, okay, like now, now what? And that's when I moved to New York. And that's when there was a little bit of education in the form of, I went to ICP, um, mm-hmm. which is International mm-hmm. Center of Photography. They have a, a nine month documentary and photojournalism program. But I had already come in, I think at that point with a bit of information on, on knowing how to build a story. You know, I had networked and met a number of photographers who were extremely helpful in, in you know, extending the hand. And you know, I think it also looking back on it now, see how young and thirsty I was and were generous with their time and their information. And, you know, it helped me, you know, sort of go in the right direction. And so I I moved to New York and did that program, but then came out of that program and really, really began to learn, really learn the craft in my time working for the Wall Street Journal. At the time, the Wall Street Journal had opened their greater New York section, which was sort of Murdoch's response to covering New York and, you know, being, you know, in competition with the times. And so there was just, there was a surge of assignments to cover the local. And that was really where I learned how to work. It was an interesting model back then. They would, you know, our shifts were eight hours long and we would, you know, we would do maybe four or five shoots per day in an eight hour period, anything from a presser to, you know, a crime scene to a portrait to, you know, backstage at the Met in one day, you'd shoot it, you'd send it in for a print the next day. And when you're doing that, do you feel like you're 
developing a style while you do it, you know, that what you want is sort of like, I want people to not literally see a photo and know it's mine, but like that I want my photos to feel distinct from all the other assignment photographers. Like to what extent are you trying to build your perspective or your my voice right voice we would say yeah so you know if you go in really heavy-handed with your visual voice on a newspaper assignment i think you know you're you're missing the point right and (laughs) i I think even if i were to be commissioned by the new york times on the newspaper side you know to just illustrate news i couldn't do it in the visual voice that i have now right I could do it, but I think, and and that role is really important to illustrate a scene clearly for the reader is extremely important. And at the time that was really enjoyable for me, but I always had, and this was, you know, largely in part because of, you know, my time at ICP too, but I had these photographic idols, you know, and I, and that only grew more when I moved to New York, you were exposed to this incredible canon of photographers who were doing this dance between, you know, fine art and documentary work. And it was delicious to see. It was incredible. And I was still in my same mode of ingesting a ton of work, but also knowing that my job at that time was to not go there visually or creatively. But what I began to do largely out of angst, you know, because eventually a press conference gets really, really old. You know, your job there is to just nail it and and go. But, yeah. you know, you there's a lot of standing around. And so at the advice of a, of a colleague and friend, it was, you know, on these shoots, just make one picture that's for you. You know, not necessarily like try to see it different or try to make it different. It was just like go in there and like what's weird about that scene or what's interesting about that scene that's beyond you know getting bloomberg walking with the police commissioner it's you know what is on the periphery or what's not on the periphery what's right in front of your face but like make a photograph for you you know and i always i had always had i think the visual voice that i i have now largely you know i've always been really interested in love with the black and white medium so for me you know there would be times where i was like all right I'll, i'll go make that picture for me and you know tone it in black and white and you're like okay like i hope someday this gets to be you know applicable to a story and you know i just was patient and waiting for that time and was there did you feel like there was a turning point when it shifted to that i mean looking back at a bunch of your work like the wall street journal stuff around hurricane sandy and that was some of your bre- your breezy point photos like that was it yeah that was it that's when it was time to go because and this kind of leads it back to what we were talking about earlier is just having an understanding of, okay, this is a moment. And I realized these are large news moments. And as my career developed and as my age developed, I think, you know, I would start to see those, you know, quote unquote moments in more quieter scenes. But, you know, Sandy at that time, it was the biggest story that I think for me that I had worked on locally. And it was a time that I could then make all of that work in the voice that I wanted to make it in. And, you know, I think there was a number of photographers at the journal who were covering it as well. And 
we were all sending in what we could, but I had also like sort of had sidebar conversations with the editors of like, Hey, by the way, I've like also made this other thing if you're interested in it. And, you know, I'm now having a hard time remembering if any of that ran, but it was sort of a moment where I'm like, huh, okay, I can start and kind of, I can kind of do this maybe, you know, I can like sort of exercise this visual voice a little bit, you know, and that became a turning point. And the really funny next step in that evolution came through, I'm always amazed at some of the editors and art directors and, and folks who take these risks, right? At the time, the creative director at The Atlantic was a great guy called um, Daryl Crooks. And Daryl Crooks had seen one of these Sandy photos and just sort of took a risk and called me for a story that he was working on for The Atlantic on Stop and Frisk. You know, called and said, you know, hey, my name's Daryl. We're building this story on Stop and Frisk in Newark, New Jersey. I saw the stuff you did with the hurricane. Can you do more of that? And I don't know how like common that is, but I, I don't I don't think that's very common. It I just I I just had this incredible moment of like, wow, this is it. If I can really make this work, you know, in this visual voice, then you know, I think we could be onto something here and working in the way that I think I would want to work, you know. Yeah. So that's when the tides turned a little bit for me in believing in that, in that visual voice. And then, you know, I'm very interested in then how you choose your subjects or your subjects get chosen for you because then, you know, you shot that Newark stop and frisk and then, you know, you shot Ferguson, you shot Baltimore, Freddie Gray. And there's obviously like, uh, there's a theme that unites those stories as a racial injustice theme to those stories. And I'm interested in how much of that is you saying, okay, here's the project I want to engage in over the next couple of years versus editors seeing one of them and saying, oh, this is the guy we want to send to do a story that is in the same general genre. Sure. At the at the time, it, it was, I started to see it as one body of work. What I had seen, the large takeaways from the work I'd done on Stop and Frisk was the culture and inaction of a militarized police force in this country. And that was something that I sort of walked away from was proactive policing. That's what I was really interested in at the time. I was like, I had had sort of a front row seat to that, you know, the, the assignment involved a, a number of ride alongs with police officers in Newark. And you, you know, I had a front row seat to seeing the style of policing that was going on and, you know, was largely criticized for good reason. But I had come out of that shoot with, okay, let's just, let's just keep an eye on, on policing here. Let's just have an eye on it. And when Mike Brown was killed and and there were large scale protests in Ferguson, and then, you know, I started to see on the news, you know, sort of weapons of war being brought out onto a suburban street in St. Louis those sort of ideas merged. And that was for me, you know, a self-assigned trip, you know, and it was, it, it, it really became the most still, I think to this day, the most formative work I've ever made and stayed there for weeks and went back for over a year, you know, and followed that story through and through. And then, you know, I started to see it as a larger body of work and, you know, that 
is when I went to Baltimore for for the New Yorker and in the in the wake of Freddie Gray's death. Yeah, yeah. And how um, I know not that I mean I've worked with a lot of photographers, but I I don't know that much about the business of of being a freelance photographer. I you know I see people mix commercial work with their photojournalism, but I don't know to what extent you do that. Like, do you feel like you do a kind of either from an editorial perspective, like one for them, one for me kind of thing, or you mix in commercial work to just make it all work as a career or that you strictly speaking, you only want to do editorial photojournalism style work for the most part. I'd love to blend the two. I'm just not naive as to how my style looks to, to brands, Mm. right? Like (laughs) if you're trying to sell a product, you probably don't want my picture. Um, And that's like a really, it hurts to say, and I I might be shooting myself in the foot by saying this on, uh, you know, on a podcast and on the radio. Um, But Uh, brands don't listen to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, so I'm not, I guess the short answer is I would love to take those sort of shoots on. And I have, you know, I've done a large number of ad shoots. I just have never tried to market myself as that because I, I have I have a lot more work to do in the documentary realm. And also I don't I don't know if I necessarily believe in the photographer that's able to do both of those things really well. There's this funny conversation that goes on with that I hear a lot of photographers having of like, yeah, you know, I, I do my personal work and I shoot the meaningful stories, but you know, I, I fund those projects by by doing commercial work. I do think they're their own individual hustles. To do really good commercial work, you need to really dedicate yourself to the practice of shooting great commercial work. You know, I, I'm not taking away anything from the photographers that do that. It is its own thing. Knowing how to run a set, knowing how to manage a team of people who are building that picture out, it is its own beast. And to be excellent in both worlds is, it's next to impossible, unless you have a, a style that's so specific and also largely works well with both the editorial world and the, the commercial world. And I think you'll, you'll see that, that turnover more in perhaps fashion or, you know, portraiture per se. But I think it's very rare that anyone who works in the documentary realm gets to have it both ways. So what's your approach when you get one of these sort of big portrait assignments like Nancy Pelosi or do you shot the Jeff Sessions cover for Time magazine like or actually Pacino and De Niro the one more recently. So do you take a kind of documentary approach? Do you have to redo your thinking when you're going into a situation like that? Definitely. It's a whole rewiring, I think, but there is a way to combine the skill sets in both. You know, I've been doing a funny amount of, you know, high-end portraiture. I think within the last two years, I've shot De Niro, Pacino, Julia Roberts. You know, I did a whole actor's portfolio for the New York Times Magazine that was all in studio. Pelosi, where we're, you know, we're building a set in her office. So for those shoots, it's a completely different beast. A completely different beast. But what I have been able to take from the documentary world and implement in the studio space is the tenacity and the fight. A lot of documentary work involves 
a bit of a fight, whether that be a fight to know where we need to be when, who we need to be having this conversation with that will get us to where the pictures are, you know, making sure that everyone is comfortable and on board with what we're doing, the conversational flow between you and the subject, also knowing when to pull back. There's all of this sort of situational awareness that you learn in in the documentary practice that you can then effectively move into the studio space. You can apply the grind of documentary work to a studio setting. And, you know, for me, it's been a fascinating journey on how to blend those two worlds. And I'm, I'm really interested in it. And they are their own things. The the practitioners of the studio, they have it dialed. They know how to control it. They are genius creatives. Could they come out into, you know, the streets of a hurricane in Houston? Probably not. And I didn't make their picture, no. But am I able to go into their space and, and make those photos? I, you know, I don't think so. But I'm interested in how those two worlds sort of meet and what I can apply to both, you know? And I'm also really interested in taking some of the studio and pulling it out into documentary work. That's influenced the work and informed a lot of the work as well. And do you find that you, it's more of a situation in those studio environments where you have to, like hurricanes, you're in the hospital, you're in the funeral home, people are doing what they're doing. It strikes me that you're sitting in this portrait studio or shooting a portrait of someone, you know, in their home or their office or at a bar or whatever, that you have to make them do something. You have to kind of like, engender the emotion you want to capture and does that come naturally to you to kind of like get Al Pacino and Robert De Niro to do something that then will they've been photographed tens of thousands of times probably it's a really good question it's something I've struggled with but you just learn hacks on all of these things hacks on how to do that better one of the things I like to say in in portraiture whether it's like a celebrity or not is it sucks. It sucks to be photographed in that space. You know, I, I, my time with Nancy Pelosi, I mean, she's great interpersonally. She's wonderful. But I know that the, the act of getting her photo taken for her, she's just like, God, get me out of here. You know, and I feel the same way. It would suck <laughs> to be in that position, you know? So I just kind of make sure to let the subject know that that, you know, is weighing heavily on my mind but then also come in with ideas for them beforehand. Of, and, you know, I do that through pulling references a lot of the time, you know, gestural references where I'll have prints laid out of other photographs that I've seen and loved or even paintings that I would love to and gone like, you know, this move or this gesture really spoke to me. And it has nothing to do with the shoot that we're on. And with actors, you know, I've found this to be true with actors. You know, they need a job. And in that world, that's how they operate really well. If, you know, I'm I'm not saying they're they're completely void of emotion, but I think they are task oriented. They are used to a world in which a director says, okay, this is your character. This is what he's experiencing now. Like, what do you think? Let's, let's try one like that. And I think if you give a, a lot of the time when I've given actors and performers these sort of tasks, the great ones, they'll just quickly look at it and go, uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. And then they'll go do it, you know, and that was largely, I think, how it went with De Niro and Pacino. And not as much as I showed them what I wanted them to do, but, you know, with De Niro, who arrived on set first, 
I had him for, you know, a good, you know, two to three minutes before we started shooting. And it was very much, I've also learned too, that you're never, you're never going to build relationships with these folks, given the amount of time that we're with them. I think writers and reporters, you guys are able to talk to them at length and, you know, but for photographers, I think the window of, of time that we really get to spend with our subjects in that context is super small. I don't, I don't know if readers really understand how limited these shoots are. I think, you know, with De Niro and Pacino, it ended up being 10 minutes, if wow. that, you yeah. know, and that, that's generous. There's times where it's literally two minutes. And so I think with De Niro and Pacino, when I was talking to De Niro, I showed him references of the world that I had built with the light. You know, this is how this world looks visually. So, you know, I'm thinking of you here in this space. But what I made sure to do was, and you know, what we had really, the photo that I had in mind was bringing the, the faces of these two men very close together. And in that, and how it serves my documentary work, it didn't require direction, but how I did alter the scene was I, I brought in a very, very, very small table and maybe a foot in width and length. And I've had them both stand on it with their elbows on it. So it, it forced a closeness and I didn't try to direct them at all. It was just like, guys, all I need from you is just to be like on this table, like, and if like a little bit closer, like, please just don't deviate outside of this world. And, and with them, what are you going to do? What are you gonna, like, great. Now, Bob, let me, you know, give me a, give me an emotion of wonder, but like fear, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have that conversation with, with him. It's not, who am I, you know? Um, but what they did do though, when you, when I built that space for them is their old friends and they suddenly became two men conspiring at a bar you know, for like the next scheme, the next thing. And it all of a sudden played into the characters that we've known them throughout the years, you know, and it's, it's thinking about the world that you build for the subjects in those shoots, you know, and what they can work with, but that's not an easy task for sure. But I do need those sets to more feel like documentary sets than I do for them to be portrait sets. And I'll often have my crew, my team, at times like interface with the subject, you know, I think there's a lot of photographers who they are exclusively the one that speaks to, you know, the quote unquote talent. Um, but you know, my assistants are wonderful people in themselves and I often let them have the conversation. So there's, you know, the subjects talking off camera to someone else, and then I can kind of just get to work and let it unfold in the way that, you know, documentary would. And that's when I'm the most comfortable build a world, let them play in it. And then I just grab what I can. So I want to return to the, I don't know how you distinguish that field work, the other documentary work before I let you go. I mean, you've, you've been shooting over the last few years around the opioid epidemic and you've shot the fires in California. And again, I'm very interested in to what extent you kind of set a project for yourself, a theme that's going to tie your work together, and then you pursue the work, or you take assignments as they come? And to what extent do you want them to fit into some larger project that you're engaged in? Right. You know, so a lot of this work 
you know, everything that I see now is largely focused around a book project that I'm starting. Um, Mm. And, you know, it's something I've been working on since really since 2014 in the wake of Ferguson. Mm. And that's really when I started to see the sense and optimism that had come out of the election of Obama suddenly start to fade and that the country had really been sold on its own mythology, right? And that America wasn't well. And then what was sort of fracturing in the country and what was churning and there was this conflict in the state all sort of sparked this radicalization and gave rise to the Trump administration. And that really became largely what I started to hone in on and want the work to focus on is the fallout of the Obama presidency into the Trump administration and looking at the sort of the fault lines and the fissures and and the fractured state. But it, you know, for me to say that a lot of this has been intentional, it, it, it hasn't, it's been, you know, I have just been covering the country and I really owe so much to so many of the editors who have brought me into the fold on working on these stories. And for many years, it was just, you know, moving through each story and they were their own individual things. But then as I started to take the long view, I saw that all of these things were connected, right? And you didn't recognize it at the time. You didn't recognize that if you were in Milwaukee, shooting a story for the New Yorker on eviction that at that very moment, you're there to make work on eviction, but you don't really, at least at the time for me, I wasn't thinking about, okay, how does this fit into the larger narrative of the country at this time? And so, you know, I'd shoot it and I'd shoot it well. And then it just sort of sat, but I think now everything has shifted within the last couple of years where All of the work I make is against the backdrop of this sort of hypothesis, if you will, you know, this sort of like thesis and that America is defined by its fissures as much as it's defined by its nostalgic fiction of greatness. And that to me has been what I've been really focused on and looking at. And every story hopefully falls into that narrative line. And it, I mean, that in our current moment, it feels like that story is everywhere. And like, how do you bring that to earth in terms of individual people and choosing how you're going to manifest that in photographs? There's so many places you could go to chase that idea. How do you decide what you're going to go after? It's an interesting question now because... I'm now, I'm just now at the point of starting to really see that body of work as something that I need to author and I need to take control of, right? I think when you work like I do, it's, it's, you know, it's hit per hit. I'm now starting to really look at my work as, as I'm authoring the work now where we go, okay, here's everything we have. Here's the material. What are we missing? What stories are we missing? What about this moment and what about this country do we need to say more on? Um, And I'm now just starting to really target 
where I want to be and what I need to be doing and what pieces I need to plug in in order to, I think, effectively do, do the work. How do you process some of these things? And just from your own mental health perspective, not just the COVID stuff, but, you know, some of those opioid photographs, you know, showing up right when someone has overdosed and their family's finding out, like, how do you work your way through witnessing these type of scenes? I, I, I channel it into the work. I don't mean to be a cop out on that, but I, again, I have a debt and the debt is to the reader and the subject. And it's important to me in those moments that I am, I'm effectively focused on doing my job and it's not about me in those moments at all, at all. Uh, the only part that it is about me is reporting it clearly in a, in a way that is captivating that the reader will not move on. And that's really all I'm, I'm focused on. You know, I've been lucky enough to not really struggle too much about it with it because I can channel it into the work that I'm doing, you know, and I love, I love my subjects, the, the people that I meet and that are, that I'm taking part in the story. It, it almost, you know, I, I really, I really care for them, but I, I try to channel that care and concern into our mission at that time, you know? So if we're photographing, if I'm photographing Patty Neff, who is a woman I met in Montgomery County in Ohio, whose son had, you know, overdosed and lost his life in the basement of their home. It's, it's, it couldn't be, it's not about me at all. It's mm -hmm. about really trying to connect with Patty and convey to the reader her pain and the struggle and really tell a larger story on an addiction. And so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm very okay with stepping out of the way. It's, it's important that I do. But does it accrue in any way for you? just the scenes, you know, do, do you find it easy to kind of get away from them in your, in your own life when you're outside of the work? Probably not. I probably, they probably stay with me more than I care to let on, but I think that's, that's what it is. That's what it is. But again, it's, it's, I'm just so focused on our aim and our mission at the time, you know, and that's effectively, communicating the story to the reader well man i really appreciate you taking the time to do this it was my pleasure it was really lovely to talk to you it's amazing to talk to you yeah i appreciate it yeah thank you so much That's it for this week's long form podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Philip Montgomery for making time for that. Go seek out his photographs if you haven't already. Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, to our intern, Marina Clementi. A special thanks this week to Madison Connaughton, one of our listeners, an editor in Australia who suggested this very episode. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And we'll see you next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.